All right, guys and gals, good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3. Now, we entered into chapter 3 a couple weeks ago, but we spent a week on the exhortation to the wives and then a week on the exhortation to the husbands. And that brings us to verse 8, which begins with the word, finally. And I know from the people in our congregation, that's a favorite word uh, that you like to use as I'm teaching, uh, sometimes long-winded. But uh, look, the word finally here doesn't mean that Peter is starting to wrap up his epistle, even as I often don't really mean I'm wrapping it up. But if I say finally, that's just a little uh, preacher technique that we use to kind of get you perked up. Oh, he's just about done, then they let you have it another 20 minutes, all right? But, uh, but, but no, the word finally, it, Peter's not using it because he's starting to wrap up his epistle. He's using it because he's wrapping up this section of his epistle, uh, which got started back in chapter 2, verse 11. So let's go back there and just kind of see how he started this. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works or by the good way you're living, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this section started with Peter admonishing us as Christians to live lives of holiness, separation from all the pollution of the world around us, uh, which will not only honor God, that's the main thing that we glorify God, that we honor Him in our, our, through our lives, but also he uh, says, will be a good witness to the unbelievers uh, that we come in contact with on a daily basis, especially, of course, our family, close friends. We want them to see we're different, okay? And uh, from there, and I'm reviewing, from there, he proceeds to tell us to be good citizens by uh, obeying those that God has placed in authority over us in government. That was chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Next, he admonishes slaves to respect and obey their earthly masters, uh, verses 18 to 22. Then wives to respect and submit to their husbands, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And husbands to submit to God in marriage by treating their wives the way the Lord has commanded them. Husbands, that's verse 7. As we come to chapter 3, verse 8, he now begins to bring this section to a close by saying, finally, or in other words, to sum it all up, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. So he now ends this section by admonishing all Christians, you know, all Christians, no matter who they are, what uh, walk of life they are from, male, female, slave, free, all of us. First of all, we are to be of one mind. We are to be of one mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to be, you know, mindless robots who can't think for ourselves, you know, those who are kind of forbidden from having our own opinions. The idea, the main idea here is unity rooted in humility. Unity rooted in humility. And of course, listen, the only mind that matters, the only mind we should all seek to have as Christians is the mind of Christ. Turn to Philippians 2. And Paul stated this very clearly in the Philippians 2 verse 5. He said, let this mind or this way of thinking be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, the question is, what was Jesus' mindset 
that Paul is referring to here, well, verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, as we have already seen in our study of First Peter, humility toward God is simply the virtue that acknowledges, look, I am nothing without him. I can do nothing without him. I am totally dependent. Now, a lot of, of course, unbelievers don't think this way. Unbelievers think they can do it all. I mean, we live in a country where we have been founded on the idea that we can do it if we work hard enough. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard and so on, but Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I stop putting so much strength in myself, and I start looking to God to be my strength and the uh, leader of my life, well, then I'm really strong. Uh, the strongest person who tries to live through self-effort and you know, looking to themselves is really a weak person. Because you're only as strong as you are. And uh, we're all human beings. We're all weak. But when we look to God to be our strength, the one who guides and directs and takes care of us, we are strong. Because we're not depending on our own strength. And we've talked about this. Uh, when I understand, when I come to a point where I realize, this is, this is the vertical humility we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, that I can do nothing apart from God. When I come to that place, it causes me to surrender my will absolutely and unconditionally to Him as the master of my life. Now, that's what Christianity is really ideally all about. Uh, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. You know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians take maybe years before they really learn to let go and really trust God in everything. All right, we, we, know, we know we should, but it's real hard letting go of that steering wheel. You know, we've been driving this bus a long time before we got became Christians, and now to turn the wheel over to Jesus and say, well, okay, Lord, you take over. Well, that's fine as long as he's going where we want to go. But if he starts going in a direction we don't like, give me that wheel back, and we try to fight with him to take control of our lives back. That's where the problem is. But that's, that's vertical humility. Now, one of the things we talked about is when you have vertical humility, humility toward God, it does manifest itself on the earth in humility towards others. Let me read you something from Andrew Murray, one of my favorite uh, writers, credible man of God. Um, he said something about humility I think is very important. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, I cannot too greatly impress upon my readers the need of realizing the lack there is today of humility within Christian circles. There is so little of the meek and lowly Lamb of God in those who are called by his name. Let us consider how our lack of love, indifference to the needs and feelings of others, even sharp comments and hasty judgments that are often excused as being honest and straightforward, are thwarting the effect of the influence of the Holy Spirit on others. In other words, we'd have a lot more impact on other people around us if we acted more like Jesus and had humility instead of, you know, acting like, you know, we were so special, right? He said, manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. Pride creeps in almost everywhere and the assemblies of the saints are not exceptions. Humility is the, is the only soil in which true virtue takes root. A lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure we face in the Christian life. We must come to admit that there is nothing so natural to man 
nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride, and acknowledge that nothing but a very determined and persevering waiting on God. You see, when you get in God's presence, he starts showing you uh, the problem, right? Uh, that's why it's hard to get in God's presence if you're not really living rightly, because he starts working on your heart. It's like Isaiah, who was probably the most godly guy in Israel in his day, because the nation was in gross apostasy or in immorality. And so Isaiah just shone like a beacon of righteousness next to that culture. But all of a sudden in chapter 6, remember how he was taken into the presence of God. So the, he said, I, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what did he say? Oh, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of, of unclean lips, and I live in the, midst, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Whenever you're in the presence of God, believe me, you begin to see yourself honestly. Now, that's what Murray is saying. We're blind to our own pride. We all think we're humble, okay? We all think we're, you know, because there's always somebody we can point to that's more carnal and, and, and so on. I look at this person in the church and go, well, you know, I mean, I'm pretty good, you know. And Murray said, look, we're all blinded uh, to our own pride. We need to spend time in the presence of God for him to really be, begin to reveal what the problem is, all right? And it's not going to happen unless we do this, he said. And acknowledge that nothing but a very determined and persevering waiting on God will reveal how lacking we are in the grace of humility and how powerless we are to obtain what we seek. We can't, we can't seek humility through hard work, is what he's saying. We must study the character of Christ until our souls are filled with the love and admiration of his lowliness. We must believe that when we are broken under a sense of pride and our inability to cast it out, Jesus himself will come to impart this grace as a part of his wonderful life within us, end quote. In other words, you know what? If you really want to change and make an impact in the world around you for Christ, you got to get in his presence. As you do, he shows you where you're lacking. But even then, it's not for you to go out and work harder, he's telling us. It's that you understand where you're lacking, and you come to the Lord and say, Lord, I see how much pride I have. You've been showing it to me. But Lord, I, I don't have the ability to, to, to stop walking in pride and start living in humility. And Jesus basically says, that's my department. I told you I'll live my life through you. But I want you to acknowledge the sin before I start to live my life through you. And, and that's really what it's all about. You know, Martin Luther, I think, nailed it when he said, God created the world out of nothing. <laughs> and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Well, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. The word compassion comes from a Greek word we get the English word sympathy from. It's a Greek word that literally means sharing the same feelings. Someone defined it as climbing into someone else's skin so as to feel and experience what they are feeling and experiencing so that you can better empathize with and minister to them. It reminds us very much of what Paul said, his admonition in Romans 12. I'll just read you verses 15 and 16. That whole chapter 12 is dynamic. Start with verse 9 especially, where he goes through a series of exhortations. That's a dynamic Second of Scripture. 
But he said in verses 15 and 16 of Romans 12, very much, sounds very much like Peter saying, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So that's kind of feeling what they're feeling, right? Somebody is joyful, let's rejoice together. Somebody is down, maybe they've lost a loved one or something. We're going to weep, we're going to feel what they're feeling. Be of the same mind toward one another. This is what Peter is saying. This is how we live the Christian life in a way like Jesus, okay? And, And that's the goal. Now, of course, the greatest example of compassion where someone climbed into into the skin of another was the incarnation you think about it that is the greatest example of compassion if we're defining it as climbing into someone else's skin and feeling what they're they're feeling and so on there's no greater example than the incarnation where god himself literally climbed into the skin of humanity became one of us to feel pain to feel hunger to feel tiredness and then of course to go to the cross and die to provide a way by which we might be saved again verse 8 he said finally all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another love as brothers guys the expression love as brothers comes from the single greek word the word philadelphos which comes from two words phileo which is a word for love in the greek and adelphos which means brother And so together they mean brother love or brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, all right? There are four different Greek words for love. The first one is eros. From that we get the English words erotic or erogenous. Uh, It doesn't have to be a lustful term, but often it is, okay? Uh, That particular Greek word is not found in the New Testament. The next word is storge, uh, which is a Greek word that talks about family love, especially the love of of a mom for her child. Uh, Very precious kind of a love. That word is also not found in the New Testament. The two other words for love are found. The first one is phileo, and uh, that means love, but it's kind of a reciprocal love, the kind of love that usually is associated with family and close friends. It's a kind of love where people do for each other. You know, they meet each other's needs because they have a connection uh, with each other as close friends or in this case as Peter is talking about those who are members of the family of God now of course the other word is agape and uh, agape is a word in the Greek that means uh, an all-consuming love people say it's God's love and you know what it does describe God's love but believe it or not it's not exclusively used of God's love I had a pastor one time say on radio that uh, that they didn't have a word to describe God's love, so they made up one, agape. Well, the word agape or agapao, the, the verb form, is actually used uh, in one place I can think of of the Pharisees. It says they loved the chief seats in the synagogues. So what does that mean? It was an all-consuming love, an unconditional love. Agape could be used and is most often, don't misunderstand me, most often used of God's unconditional love toward us. That's a good love. But it can be used in a negative sense of somebody that so loves power or so loves recognition, it's unconditional. They won't let anything move them from that focus or that goal. Just so you understand, all right? Now, 
When we talk about phileo love, I know that there are those, before we actually started defining it and all, we're probably thinking, well, you know, I thought we were supposed to love each other with God's love, agape. And of course, that is true. Let me read to you first. Of course, John's whole first epistle talks about God's love quite a bit, but especially in chapter 4. If you could turn there if you want, 1 John 4. You can read the whole chapter. I'll just pull out verses 7 and 8, where John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, every time the word love appears in those two verses, it is the word agape, agape, or its verb form, agapao. But listen, brotherly love and agape love are not mutually exclusive. I mean, it's not like it's either one or the other. In fact, they both should go hand in hand in the family of God or in the local church. I'll have you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. I'll show you an interesting verse on this subject. I'll show you what I mean. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Paul said, But concerning brotherly love, again, the Greek word philadelphos, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love agape one another. Now, let me stop and say this. We are commanded in Scripture to love, agape, our enemies, which doesn't require feelings because God's love is not feelings-oriented. It's action-oriented. For God so loved the world that he what? Felt. He gave. That he gave is an action, okay? An action. Uh, and so to love our enemies means to practically help them or meet their needs if the opportunity presents itself. I mean, love is actions, right? And so to love our enemies just means to help them if they need help. Uh, maybe meet a need that they have if the opportunity presents itself. Look, uh, we don't have to have deep feelings of love for them to do that. Some people say, well, how can I love my enemies? I have no feelings for my enemies. Not about feelings. Agape love is action love. It's, it's meeting needs, as I just said. And you don't have to have deep feelings of love to do that. In fact, we, we don't even have to like a person that we show God's love to, okay? Um, just meet their need. Now, here's the thing about agape love, though. Only Christians have it, by the way, because uh, Paul said in Romans 5, verse 5, uh, God's love is poured into our hearts the moment we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's there. You don't really have to tap into it. You don't have to love people with God's love. We can still be very carnal in our love and so on. Um, but it is there only uh, for use by a Christian because unbelievers are not connected to God so they don't have the life of God in them Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature when we get saved and part of that of course is that God pours his love he is love he pours that agape love into us but if when you start to walk in agape love and you begin to show that to others even initially people you don't even like you start doing that you start meeting their needs simply out of obedience to God feelings will start to come interesting well when i feel like it when i when god gives me feelings for them i'll start doing nice things for them then you got it backwards you treat them with kindness you help them in whatever way you can and god will bring the feelings where am i going with this well you know when we talk about ideally in a church there should be the combination of agape love and brotherly love there's a lot of churches, maybe some of you went to one of them at one time, where members 
might do for each other, but you get the impression they don't really like each other. Okay. I mean, they're there. It's their church. But when you walk in, you don't get an overwhelming sense of brotherly love. I'm not saying they're not kind people. I'm not saying that they don't help others in need. I'm just saying they, they, there's not a lot of warmth, not a lot of affection, which is really what philo love is all about, mutual affection. Again, ideally, a church should be a, a family where brotherly love rooted in agape is demonstrated, in other words, a place where Christians, listen, generally like each other. I mean, you've heard, maybe you've heard somebody say this, Christian says, you know, I love them in the Lord, I just don't like them. Okay, I understand that. You know, there are some people that, you know, when you both got to heaven, you know, you wouldn't mind if they lived on the other side of town. And, you, you know, you know. Now that, that, we, we say that tongue-in-cheek. When you get to heaven, the Christian you like the least, you're going to love the most. When, when the flesh is stripped away completely and we get our glorified bodies, everything's, everything's going to change. But right now on the earth is what I'm talking about. Ideally, you know, we have God's agape love. But now Peter is saying, look, it's great you have agape love. Paul is saying it, okay? Uh, it's great that you have agape love, but now you need to cultivate that brotherly love where you really love each other, you like each other, where you enjoy being around each other is the idea. Well, how does God do that? Because Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, you yourselves are taught by God to love each other. Well, of course, taught by God to agape each other, that happens at point of conversion when God pours his spirit inside of you and gives you his love but now it's got to work its way out into your life and so how does God teach us to exercise brotherly love well I think primarily you just have to come to church and get to know each other which you guys are here there's a lot of Christians who don't bother spending time with the body they come in late they hear the message they run out quick before anybody can talk to them you know so consequently, they don't really know anybody. How are you going to meet each other's needs if you don't know what the needs are? How are you going to know that if you don't know the person? This is why God wants us to not forsake the fellowship of the saints, in part because it helps us to connect with each other on a deeper level, try to help keep each other accountable. But when a need comes up, we can meet that need. You start meeting needs, well, what you're doing is you're investing in people's lives. And when you invest yourself in people's lives, now there's that connection. Oh, it's always there in Christ. I'm talking about practically, though. You start sensing a connection, and feelings start to grow. Genuine feelings where I really care about this person. This is what I believe Peter and Paul are talking about. Now, Peter goes on, and the last thing he says here is, you know, finally, you know, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous the opposite of tender-hearted would be hard-hearted which more and more is describing the time we are living in you know jesus in matthew 24 verse 12 and paul in second timothy 3 verse 3 both told us that in the last days the love of many would grow cold and as the love of others is growing cold paul said a love of self would grow in its place. So love of others decreasing, love of self in the last days increasing. We're seeing this in our day. The Greek word translated tender-hearted is kind of like the word translated 
compassionate, they overlap in some ways. The one that it comes from a Greek word that literally means sympathy. But tender-hearted is, is really a call. I think it's a command for all of us who are believers not to grow hard and unfeeling towards the sufferings, the problems, or the weaknesses of others, especially those in the body of Christ, but to have a deep sense of concern and caring for them. And again, you're not going to develop feelings for people if you don't spend any time with them. Christians who rush into church, rush out, without really interacting with the body of Christ are cheating themselves and others because others could benefit from your walk, your gifts, and um, by, by not investing yourself in the body, well, there, there's not that, that mutual affection that develops. Um, but I understand why. Everybody's busy. Everyone's got crazy schedules. And let's be honest, there are so many troubled people in our society today that sometimes we're a little bit nervous about drawing close to somebody we don't know that well. Maybe they may try to drain us of our time. Or maybe worse, maybe there's, they have some real issues that might be a danger to me and my family down the road. One author put it this way, said, Today we are deluged with so much bad news that it is easy for us to get insulated and unfeeling. We need to cultivate compassion and actively show others that we are concerned. So, you know, rise above that. Trust God and, you know, be uh, tenderhearted. Don't get hard. Again, we're moving. We're in the last days, I believe. And um, even Christians are getting kind of hard-hearted in many ways. And, and some of it is because they've been burned a lot. I understand that. I'll tell you what, though. One thing I learned years ago about ministry. Ministry can be very, at times, the most blessed thing you could ever do. But it's not always easy. Especially when you pour yourself into people and they turn on you, Right? A lot of people have gotten so bitter by that that they've gotten out of the ministry. That's not the answer. The answer is to do everything you do for people, do it for Jesus. And then if they turn against you or don't appreciate you, that's fine, because I did it for Jesus. And he said, I can't give a cup of cold water to one of his little ones in his name without receiving my reward. So he, he knows exactly what I'm doing. I just do it for Jesus. And every time somebody turns against me and all, I just, well, Lord, I just, you know my heart. I loved them. I, I was there for them. And I did it for you. And, and, and you move on. All right? And finally, Peter tells us to be courteous to one another, especially to those, again, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Greek word just simply means to be affectionate, kind, friendly, uh, hospitable, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it, it must break the Lord's heart when he sees his people being rude and unkind toward each other. I've seen some unbelievers treat people kinder than some Christians, and that's a problem. God is saying to the Apostle Peter, it must not be, it should never be, all right? All right, verse 9. He goes on to say, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this. That's what the Christian life is all about, to, to follow Christ and to emulate him. For this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, guys, when it comes to responding to the actions of others, we can live at one of three different levels. We can return evil for good. That's the demonic level. 
when someone does a person good and then they respond with evil towards them, well, that's demonic. We can return good for good and evil for evil. That's living at a human level. Any human being can do that. You don't have to be a spirit-filled Christian to treat others that way, good for good, evil for evil. Or we can return good for evil. That's godly. That is God's level or the divine level. And of course, that last level is the highest because it is God's level. It's a level that Jesus lived on and acted from toward his enemies. In fact, Peter mentions this back in chapter 1, or excuse me, back in chapter 2. You just flip over to there. And again, Jesus is our example. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Again, it reminds me of what Paul said in Romans 12. Why don't you turn there? I'll just read to you, starting with verse 17, out of the NLT. Again, mirroring quite a bit what Peter said. But here's what Paul says in Romans 12, starting with verse 17. He said, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will repay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the way Jesus lived his life. Now, back in 1 Peter 3, verse 10, he goes on to say, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now that's a quote from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. And it lays out, listen, the general pattern for living a blessed life. Now there's always exceptions to any rule, okay? Peter is laying out the general pattern, the general rule for living a blessed life. Again, this is a principle, not a promise. Be careful. A lot of Christians approach Proverbs 22.6 as if it's a promise from God instead of a principle. Uh, you all know it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if you believe God gave you that as a promise for your child, you cling to that with all your heart. I'm just saying I believe the writer of the Proverbs was laying down a principle, uh, not a steadfast, 100% guaranteed promise. And Peter's doing the same thing here. Uh, when he talks about what you do and don't do, if you do this, in general, it's a great principle because, you know, you live a blessed life, right? Now, listen, some might find Peter's statement in verse 10 he who would love life, he's using it in the positive there, 
uh, they might find that at odds with what Jesus said in John 12, 25, where he said he who loves his life will lose it. The difference is that Peter is addressing his remarks to believers who live godly lives in obedience to what the Lord has commanded, resulting in a blessed and happy life. Whereas in John 12, the Lord is condemning unbelievers, those who refuse to live for God's glory by obeying what he has commanded in favor of living for themselves and their own selfish pleasures. There's a big difference there, right? So if you obey the Lord, you want to live a good life, you want to live a blessed life, obey God. Okay, treat others with kindness, that kind of thing, and so on. Now, verse 12, he, uh, he says, uh, once again, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, it reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah said in his book, chapter 59. Why don't you just turn there quickly. And again, Peter's quoting out of Psalm 34, but uh, it reminds us very much of what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, starting with verse 1, Isaiah 59, starting with verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his, his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Your prayers is the idea. In other words, how you treat others is going to impact the way God treats you. Now, what do you mean? Well, there are some immutable laws of God, like you reap what you sow. Peter, or James I'm thinking of, he said, you know, uh, mercy will be shown to the one who shows mercy. The implication is if you're not kind and merciful to others, if you're hard on them, then maybe God will be hard on you. All right? If you're kind and gracious, especially with the faults and flaws of others, in a very real sense, practically speaking, God will be a little easier on you maybe because you're showing kindness to people. I think it goes along with what James said that um, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble is the idea too, you know. When you think you're somebody and you're looking down at everybody else's faults and so on, then God is going to be hard on you because you're not walking in humility, you're walking in pride. However, if you see somebody that's a weaker brother or sister and you stoop down to help them and encourage them uh, in humility, then God will lift you up and, and bless you, is the idea. All right, 1 Peter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, again, guys, Peter is laying down a principle, a general rule, that if you treat others with love and kindness, as God has commanded, well, they will treat uh, you that way in return. Peter is restating what some have called the golden rule. What Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 12, you remember this, of course, he said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So that's the idea, and I think Peter is just kind of restating that, that look, if you want people to treat you a certain way, then treat them that way. Now, that is a general principle. But sometimes with some people, no matter how good you are to them, how well you treat them, they're still going to respond negatively to you. Something that Paul acknowledged in Romans 12, we just read it, verse 18. He said, if possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. And I get the impression, I think it's pretty obvious, that Paul, in saying that, realized that sometimes no matter how hard you try, it is impossible to live in peace with certain people because they just won't allow it. 
but you still treat them with kindness, okay? But there are exceptions to every rule. And uh, the Bible speaks often, most often, in general principles. I'll give you an example. First John, right? I think it was chapter 3. John said, Christians love the brethren. If you don't love the brethren, you're not a Christian. You're a child of the devil. Well, there's always somebody in the body of Christ that we just said earlier, you're not that crazy about. So all of a sudden now you're thinking, well, this is a warning, a promise to me. If I don't love all Christians, then I really am not a Christian and I'm going to hell. No, it's just a general principle. Generally speaking, we Christians love each other. Okay? Just like Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit, right? Now, all Christians bear fruit because you're connected to God through the Holy Spirit. Now, you can always find somebody bearing a lot more fruit than you. But I guarantee, even the most carnal Christian, you, you search enough, you'll find a couple of dried up raisins somewhere, all right? There's some fruit somewhere there. But these are, again, general principles, okay? Um, and then after, you know, laying down the general principle, how, you know, if we treat others a certain way, it'll determine the way they treat us. Then he, then he kind of talks about the exception in verse 14. He said, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now you have to remember when Peter said this, it was directed at a, um, a group of people, Christians, living in the first century. And in that culture at that time, dying for their faith was a very real possibility. So if you see it in that context, because that's the context in which he wrote this. Now, you know, for us, persecution right now consists of somebody mocking us or, or you know, something verbal. The time may come when we are also ex uh, going to experience physical persecution for our faith, maybe even martyrdom, I don't know. But especially in those days, believers at that time, uh, martyrdom was a real possibility. And so how do they approach this? How do they serve the Lord? Knowing that they could at any moment be arrested and crucified. Well, I believe they really clung to things that Jesus said, especially in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, where the Lord said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has the power to cast the soul into hell for eternity. I say, fear God. And so they adopted that. There's many other admonitions, okay, uh, about not loving their life unto death and so on. But they really wrapped their minds and hearts around that idea that at any time, they could be killed for their faith. And, and that's something they live with every day. I remember hearing one missionary say uh, in India how that um, the believers in India, uh, very evangelistic-minded, okay? Uh, but when the missionaries were going to a new village, the first thing they did was to dig a grave for themselves on the outskirts of town because they knew they may not make it out of that village alive. And I think it was more for their benefit, of course, if they died as a martyr, 
What happened to that hole in the ground, who cares at that point? They're gone. They're with the Lord. But I think for, for more than anything else, it was their, their way of preparing themselves for the reality of what might be coming. And that they didn't enter into a situation like that without making sure they were right with God, at peace with God, and prepared to meet the Lord. You know, I think it was Amos who said, prepare to meet your God. Well, that was a prophet speaking to Israel because judgment was coming. But in a very real sense, that should be something that every human being takes to heart. Are you ready to meet your God? Because tomorrow's not promised to anybody. I mean, you don't have to be a missionary. You could, you could, you know, I think of these poor folks in Florida pulled up to the stoplight there at the very instant that bridge came crashing down and killed like, what, eight people or so? I mean, you think, think about this. Who knows what, what they were thinking? Probably maybe going to have a nice dinner with their wife or their husband that night or Maybe they were going to take in a movie or, or maybe they had plans for the weekend that they were thinking about already. You pull up to a light, you're thinking about this, and the next instant you're in eternity. Tomorrow is not promised to anybody. That's why we have to live every day as if today could be our last day and we have to prepare ourselves. Are we right with God? Are we ready to see the Lord? Well, Paul was. Remember in Acts 21, verse 13, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Everywhere he goes, prophets are saying, Paul, don't go, because chains and imprisonment are awaiting you there. And Paul didn't know, he knew he was going to be arrested, because the Spirit was revealing that. He didn't know if it was going to lead to his own death. And Christians were just beside themselves, because they loved Paul. Paul, don't go, don't go, you know. Everywhere Paul went on his way to Jerusalem, they were begging him not to go there. And Paul said in Acts 21, 13, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice how Paul said he was what? Ready to die for Christ. Implying he had prepared himself for that possibility. I think the ability to die for Christ, and don't get me wrong, I know it comes through the strength of God. Okay, I know that. I'm just talking about from our perspective. I think the ability to die for Christ has to start long before in the way we think about the Christian life and especially about what Jesus meant when he told us that we couldn't start to follow him as his disciples until we first took up the cross. Now, I understand that for most of us, that's kind of a metaphorical statement. The cross speaks of dying to self. Crucifixion was outlawed 2,000 years ago, basically. Uh, so for us, it means primarily that we, you know, live a life of self-denial to follow the Lord wherever he leads. But when Jesus said that, crucifixion was a very real possibility for his followers. And so I think a big part of what he was saying to them was to prepare them for what might come in the way of their martyrdom. Be careful you don't yank verses out of their context because you will not interpret them properly or fully. And I believe when Jesus said, you can't be my disciples until you first take up your cross and follow me. Yeah, self-denial was at the heart of it, but also the realization that, look, you might be killed for following me. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared to die for me is the idea. I mean, this gets into a mindset. The mindset of a Christian, that a Christian must have, they're going to be able to properly serve the Lord or even die for his name's sake. Uh, we must have the right 
mindset, again, you know, have this mind, the mind of Christ. But, but it gets into having the right attitude about the Christian life. You know, we've talked about this before, but all throughout the New Testament, we are likened to soldiers, soldiers of Christ, right? Paul and others had a lot to say about being good soldiers, not entangling yourself in the cares of this life, and so on and so forth. And of course, then, of course, Paul talked about the armor of the soldier and the sword and the helmet and all of that in Ephesians 6. Well, let me just say this to you. If you ask any general, I'm talking about a literal general of armed forces or commanding officer, they will tell you, you can give a soldier the best body armor money can buy. Outfit them with the most sophisticated, up-to-date weaponry that has been developed. You could surround them with all kinds of comrades, uh, men and women who will work together. You can surround them with this fantastic group of individuals. But if they don't have the mind of a soldier, it's all worthless. It's all wor- Because if they don't have a heart for the fight, if their heart is not in it, they might be there physically, but they're A-W-O-L emotionally. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And there's a lot of Christians that fit that exact description. I mean, God has given to them the best weaponry the Holy Spirit can give them. Okay, the armor of the Christian, the sword of the Spirit, and so on. Um, He has given us a great family of, of people that fight alongside of us against the devil. But there's a lot of Christians who just don't understand their inner war. They, they don't have a, a heart for the battle. And because they don't have the right attitude, none of the other stuff matters. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, Spiritual warfare will be won or lost in the mind, in your attitude towards what the Christian life is really all about, in how you view every situation and circumstance that God puts you in. I believe one of the big reasons that the church in America is so powerless, defeated, and irrelevant is because most Christians don't have the proper attitude toward the Christian life. They don't have the mindset of a soldier, and as such, they have no heart for battle. They are nothing more than, listen, country club Christians, end quote. Guys, faithfulness and victory in the Christian life starts with the way you think. In fact, we've talked about this many times. Spiritual warfare at its core is a fight for control the way you think. The devil wants to control the way you think because if he can, he can control the way you live. That's why when we get saved, or when we got saved, um, the Bible tells us, Paul especially in, in Romans 12, he said, don't be conformed to this world's way of thinking any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you transform the way you think? Get in the word of God. Get in the Word of God and begin to think the thoughts of God. Begin to reprogram yourself. The devil has been, he programmed us all our lives before Christ and wants to continue to control us because, again, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If he can control the way you think about things, and this goes for Christians I'm talking about too, because once we get saved, the battle doesn't end there. Now it escalates. Now it ramps up in many ways. And that's why Christians have got to fight the urge to think like the world around them. This is a big thing in marriage when a a Christian couples are having a real tough time. They're going through a real difficult patch. And instead of turning to the word of God or spirit filled Christians because the flesh doesn't want to hang in there. 
They turn to unbelieving friends or the world and some secular counselors. I have somebody I'm very close to a couple, and um, they were having uh, marital problems for years. They went to this secular counselor. Why, I'm not sure, but they did. After a few sessions, the counsel was, you know what, you guys have irreconcilable differences. You might as well just get a divorce. Now, that's not godly advice. And depending on how much your flesh wants to bail, you'll embrace that. You'll start thinking like the world. The Bible admonishes us, don't do that. Don't be conformed to this world's way of thinking. Be transformed. Uh, James says, you know, the wisdom of the world is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Don't go there. Fill your mind with the Word of God. It's pure. It's perfect. It will challenge you, but it will also encourage you. And by God's grace, it will empower you to be all that he wants you to be. So we need to have the mind of Christ, who came down from heaven and was willing to obey his Father in all things, even going to the cross to purchase our salvation. We're not going to be able to face the rigors of the Christian life or just, I mean, it's getting harder and harder to walk with the Lord. The devil's really ramping up his attacks. If we're going to be able to live for the Lord and even die for him if need be, we are going to need to um, spend time in his presence and in his word, right? Now, this is what the old saints did. Uh, they didn't have the distractions we have. There's no television, radio, all kinds of internet. So they spent a lot of time with each other in fellowship, in the word, and in prayer. And I think as such, they were much better prepared to face martyrdom than maybe any of us would be, okay? Although God gives grace, right? But I came across something one writer said, talking about uh, Polycarp, who was an early church father. I think he was um, at one time the pastor of the church of Ephesus, too, after Timothy. But um, he talked about this verse out of 1 Peter 3.14, Don't be afraid of men or terrified by their threats. The author said, how well the martyrs lived out this policy. When Polycarp was promised release, if he would blaspheme Christ, he said, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul threatened to expose him to the wild beasts, he replied, it is well for me to be speedily released from this life of misery. I'm bringing on. Okay, I'm, I want to get out of here. Finally, the ruler threatened to burn him alive. Polycarp said, I fear not the fire that burns for a moment. You do not know the fire that burns forever. That's what you ought to be concerned about. You're talking about me being concerned about a fire that burns for a moment? <laughs> Bring it on. What you need to be worried about is the fire that never is quenched. You get your life right with Christ. You know, you have a mindset like that, right? You're prepared to die. If that's your mindset, there's nobody's going to stop you. Paul the Apostle, he was unstoppable. Why? Because he didn't care about dying. I mean, if I can stay and be with you a little longer, praise the Lord. If I, if I die and go to be, it's a win-win. Okay? It's a win-win. And therefore, he just was unstoppable. All right, verse 15. Peter goes on, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Uh, what does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts? Well, the word sanctify uh, means to set apart. 
And uh, really what it means in this context is to set apart Jesus, God, from all the other things in life, the career, material possessions, earthly pleasures, anything, to make him supreme above all, your first love. Remember uh, what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, uh, you've left your first love. Your first love, what does that mean? The Greek is supreme love. You've left me uh, as your supreme love. And now you've turned to other loves. Again, guys, this is the secret to live in the Christian life, to have no other loves competing with your love for, for Jesus. Of course, it doesn't mean you can't love your spouse or your family. That's, that's not what's in view here. But even then, and this is hard for a lot of even Christians to digest, that when the Lord says, I want to be your first love, your supreme love, now, he wants you to love your spouse, your mom and dad, your kids, so on. But even though you love your family, and that's legitimate, even then they must take a back seat to your love and loyalty for the Lord Jesus Christ. So when a young person who has been touched by the Holy Spirit comes to his parents, who are all Christians, says, I believe God is leading me to leave college to go on the mission field. And they try to talk him out of it with all their heart, he is to obey God rather than men. That goes for anything. Jesus has got to be first, but let me balance it again. We've talked about people who don't come at that biblically, like the woman that talked with Cindy years ago about how that God was leading her to leave her husband and kids, little kids, to be a missionary somewhere. I'm obeying Jesus. No, you're not. Because he wouldn't tell you to leave your husband and little children, you know, and go on the mission field. When the kids grow up and leave the house and your husband uh, is on board with you, then it's a season to go and be a missionary. But I'm just talking in general terms. Look, you know, our, our first love and loyalty belongs to Jesus Christ. We love our earthly families, but they must take a backseat to our love for the Lord. Now, Again, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Uh, as Christians, we need to always be ready to present our faith, which means we need to study to make sure we know what we believe and why. Remember what Paul said, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? Guys, there's nothing worse than an ill-prepared or ignorant Christian. I, I won't have you turn to this, and we'll only get as far tonight as verse 17, but there's nothing worse than a Christian who has been a Christian for years and has never grown up in the faith. Remember what the writer to the Hebrews said, which I believe is Paul, in Hebrews 5.12? You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others about the faith. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Now look, I am not talking against anyone who has questions and they want to, to understand things. And, and sometimes Christians feel embarrassed because maybe what they're asking is kind of rudimentary. Well, hey look, if, if you want to grow, I'll spend as much time with you as you, want, as you need. All right, I'm talking about Christians who have been Christians for years but don't really want to grow. They're not putting any effort into their walk. They're not studying the Word. They're not doing any of it. 
And when somebody comes to them and asks them a question, they have, don't even know the I've had people call me who I know have been Christians for 30 years. And, and they're living this very verse. By this time, they ought to be discipling others in the faith. They're still asking me very basic questions that they should have had answered in their minds years and years ago. So he says, look, always be ready to give a defense. Always be ready, that's the key thought, to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. The Greek word for defense is apologia. It's a word from which the English terms apology and apologetics come from. The word back then was often used of a defense lawyer presenting a case in a court of law, but could also be used in a less formal way of making a defense of the Christian faith. Reason is the Greek word logos, which means a word or a message. So Peter is admonishing us to always be ready to present our case as to why we're Christians and not Muslims or Buddhists or even atheists. Why, why have we put our hope Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Why have we put our hope in the Christian faith and not in any other faith? That's a pretty basic question, isn't it? And if somebody came to you tomorrow and said, why are you a Christian and not a Buddhist? Could you answer that? Well, I, I don't know. I kind of just kind of like being a Christian. You know? Okay, that's a compelling uh, argument. But yeah. Look, Peter's admonishing us that we should have our facts ready to go. As if we're entering into a court to present our case before a judge, which means we must do it intelligently, coherently, and concisely. You don't know what you You should be able to present a case for the Christian faith in just a few sentences, just a few paragraphs maybe. And, and remember this, that's our responsibility to present a good defense of the faith, an apologetic to somebody who asks us why we're Christians. That's our responsibility, to bring Christ to men, not to bring men to Christ. That's God's responsibility. Let's never forget that, okay? Also, Peter tells us we must present our case for Christ and Christianity with meekness and fear, or in other words, with humility and respect for those that we are witnessing to, you know, not with an arrogant or a know-it-all attitude, all right? I'll have you turn to one last scripture, 2 Timothy 2. Because if we're talking about what Peter is telling us here, we have to then cross-reference it to what Paul said to Timothy, which you've read a hundred times, no doubt. But 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 to 26, he said, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. What is Paul saying primarily through those verses? That when you witness to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ, when you present a defense, an apologia, for why you're a Christian and give people a good reason, you are entering into spiritual warfare at its most basic level. The devil has taken them captive, has blinded their eyes. He doesn't want you coming around with the light of God's truth and 
given them the truth that God might use to open their eyes and bring them to Christ. It's warfare. So don't get upset with the person. They're a pawn in the devil's hands is the idea. I mean, that's why we shouldn't argue with them or look down on them. Because really, they've been taken captive of the devil to do his will. So therefore, Lord, give me a heart of humility and a heart of compassion. Because these folks are prisoners. They don't realize they're prisoners. We didn't before we got saved. But they are. And it's our job not to argue with them or get frustrated and put them down because they won't acknowledge the point we're trying to make. Just give them the gospel in love and um, keep the main thing the main thing. Because unbelievers are going to want, want to run you around town, you know. I mean, just, you know, well, what about this? What about that? You know, you know this, you know, I have one guy say, well, you know, it, you know, you believe in uh, creation. I believe in evolution, you know. And after arguing, this is a long time ago, after arguing with him for, I don't know, half hour on whether evolution or creation was, was the right way to go, the Lord clearly spoke to my heart. He did, you know, how it happens, like in a, just a microsecond. Like information is just there, Right. And only the Lord told me, Phil, even if you could convince him beyond a shadow of a doubt evolution was not true at all and creation was, he still wouldn't be saved. Keep the main thing the main thing. It's about Jesus, right? not about evolution or creation. If he accepts Christ, all that stuff will take care of itself. God will reveal the truth in those, about those things, right? All right. And then finally, verses 16 and 17, 1 Peter 3. Having a good conscience... That when, and I'm going to paraphrase, unbelievers defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. So look, if people who are unbelievers are going to start attacking you, attacking your character, it's going to happen. Just make sure they have to lie about you. That they're not picking up on something that's true. Because you're not living like a Christian. But... He said, you know, having a good conscience when you witness to people that, you know, that you have lived a godly life, not perfect, but you're not a hypocrite, so that when they go around defaming you as evildoers, you know, ascribing evil to you, uh, really they're going to be ashamed because they know they're, they're lying. Peter ends by saying, look, it's always better to suffer for living the right life than to suffer for living a sinful life. Uh, this is what God wants us to live a godly life, and then if we suffer for it, well, so did Jesus. He takes note and will reward, okay? Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And, Lord, we've covered a lot of things tonight. Most of them have to do with the way we act, even how we think. The goal, of course, is to be more like Jesus in both. Give us grace to have the mind of Christ. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit, which Love leads the list. And Lord, forgive us for being carnal, selfish, for not showing others your agape love, and many times not even showing Christians brotherly love. Forgive us if we've gotten selfish, Lord, and hard-hearted. Lord, we need to work a move of your Spirit to soften our hearts, to fill us with your love, that we might go into this world and be a light. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to draw close to you, that you may draw close to us, that we might see ourselves as we really are, that we might fall on our faces and cry out to you for mercy, that you, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Spirit, would begin to live your life through us, which is the only way we can be like you. 
So we thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in your precious name. Amen.